You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. As Zesko Fitzgerald put it, you know, here's a, here's a new generation which has lost its moorings. It's grown mm-hmm. up to find all gods dead. And it seeks new meaning. And sometimes it finds that new meaning in relativity. And sometimes it finds that new meaning in radical political ideologies, such as fascism or communism. Colonel Thomas Gowenlock served as an intelligence officer in the American 1st Division, the expeditionary force that goes over to France in World War I. He's on the front line, November 11th, 1918, and wrote of his experience later. On the morning of November 11th, I sat in my dugout in our division headquarters, talking to our chief of staff, Colonel John Greeley. A Signal Corps officer entered and handed us the following message. Official radio from Paris, 6.01 a.m., November 11th, 1918. Marshal Falk to the Commander-in-Chief. One, hostilities will be stopped in the entire front beginning at 11 o'clock, November 11th, French hour. Two, the Allied troops will not go beyond the line reached at that hour on that date until further orders. My watch, Goenlock continues, said 9 o'clock. Only two hours to go. So he drives from the bank of the river to see this great finish. But during this time, the last two hours, it's not like people are sort of, hey, there's an armistice coming. Let's get ready. The shelling was heavy. And as Goenlock walked down the road, it grew steadily worse. It seemed that every battery in the world was trying to burn up its guns, he said. Numerous American units. The 32nd and 33rd Army Divisions, the 5th Marine Regiment, were ordered into combat that morning and suffered serious losses. In the five hours between the announcement of the armistice and the actual event, the two sides suffered a combined 10,944 casualties, including 2,738 dead. The fighting went on to get revenge, to use up leftover ammunition, to teach the enemy a lesson. Among those was a young captain, Harry S. Truman, who was enthusiastically firing during this time. I fired 164 rounds at the enemy before he quit this morning. I'm for peace, but that gang should be given a bayonet piece and made to pay for what they've done to France. In fact, when Goenlock starts, you know, his walk around and you hit that 11th hour, Firing continues. Men on both sides had decided to give each other all they had, their own farewell to arms. Many soldiers believed the armistice would only be a temporary measure, and the war would go on. As night comes, it's quiet. Men 
sat around log fires. They had never used these before because that would be signaling the enemy where to send the shells. Now they could. And they talked in low tones. Goenlock said their minds were numbed by the shock of peace. The Germans, said one British corporal, came from their trenches, bowed to us, and then went away. That was it. There was nothing which, which we could celebrate, except cookies. The events that would lead to that event, the armistice, which was so surprising to even many people on the front, would be a meeting in a forest in France. It's in a railroad car, and it's allowed through the front. The day had been coming at least since August 8th, 1918, the Black Day, it was called, of the German army, when 15,000 German men surrendered on the same day, the day of a French and British offensive. Germany had lost Bulgaria, lost Turkey, lost Austria-Hungary, which was suing for its own peace. On the first day of autumn, the German general Ludendorff calls his staff officers together to a meeting. The Western Front could break at any moment. Germany's allies have already folded or will soon be forced to surrender. A combination of Arab and British Empire forces captures Damascus. Istanbul is wide open. The German army, poisoned with communist and socialist ideas, cannot be relied upon. The real enemy now is revolution. In consequence, the general tells his staff, the German high command is recommended to the Kaiser that Germany sue for peace. Having resisted such a decision for weeks, Ludendorff is now adamant that it must happen immediately. At the announcement, some begin to weep. A few find themselves holding each other's hands so tightly they feel they might break. The general has only a few final words left to add, but these are political. They will weigh heavily in the future. He has recommended to Wilhelm that any new German government be made up of those responsible for putting us where we are today. The socialists and pacifists will be forced to make the peace. They must be made to drink the soup they have brewed. A lieutenant grabs the general's arm. Is this the last word? Am I alive or am I dreaming? God has wished it so, replies the general. I see no other escape. That evening, a birthday party for Hindenburg, another German general, goes ahead as planned. As is traditional, they are drinking songs and dancing, but all those present know that they are witnessing the end of an era. One of Ludendorff's close associates whispers in the general's ear, You and I will be hanged some day. There's a haphazardness to the end of the war that didn't seem to match the length and cruelty of it. A war that began in 1913 and set the continent of Europe, along with fighting in many other continents across the world, but set the continent of Europe on fire. It also involved the United States. And we, we often don't think about the effect on the United States, but my guest that I'll have on today will talk a bit about that. It would leave Russia from a kingdom, an empire, into a country in a bitter civil war between Bolshevik communists and the white army. The revolution that would spread in Russia would have elements in Germany. There would be communist revolutions and attempts in Italy, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia. In England, there wouldn't be a communist government, but the Labour Party wants a kind of 
joke party from the 1890s representing labor unions will have its first labor prime minister. Ireland is separated from the United Kingdom, declares a free state. In the United States, there's strikes, there's race riots, really, to be clear, there's attacks on black people and black communities in various towns across the country. There's a huge recession. There's a flu epidemic. There's conversion of previous kingdoms into very unstable democracies. There's new countries created at the peace table. There's American involvement in European affairs in a way that there had never been. And, you, you know, at the same time, you're having developments in physics. Einstein's theory of relativity comes out in this time. In psychology, Freud and his psychoanalysis becoming more popular. Freud is a – Sigmund Freud is a Austrian and is experiencing the ups and downs of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In art, there's Cubism, there's Dada, there's Surrealism, all these new expressive forms. In music, there's jazz. That's why I'm pretty excited to be able to talk to Charles Emerson, the author of Crucible, The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of a New World, 1917 to 1924. Whereas traditionally we tend to think, uh, certainly in Britain and France, the United States, of the World War ending uh, in November 1918. Of course, that's why we commemorate Armistice Day on November the 11th. His book, over 600 pages, is going to focus on those years and important years they are. In fact, across much of Europe, the war really doesn't end so neatly in, in 1918 at all. It kind of fragments into these series of other conflicts and revolutionary uh, events and civil wars, wars of independence, uh, and even wars between, between different states, which continue across, across the European continent. Summer 1918. Russia's cities are starving. People struggle to stand up straight from hunger. Skin becomes translucent, as if made of wax. The question of how to fill one's stomach dictates everything else. Berlin. German soldiers return home to find cold hearse and hungry mouse. The new chancellor worries about their morale, concerned they will fall in line with the communists. In Berlin, he greets them in person with a speech. Comrades, he begins, welcome back to your homeland, which has so longed for your return, and for which you have experienced such anguish. He lavishes praise on the superhuman deeds of the rank and file. You have kept the murder and fire of war away from your wives, your children, your parents. In some parts, it sounds like a victory speech. In others, it sounds like a plea for help. Well, the, I mean, the German situation in 1918 is really is really fascinating, and it's remarkably different, of course, from the situation in 1945, because in November 1918, you know, German troops are actually in France and Belgium. There are very few Allied troops actually in Germany. That becomes a very, very major factor later on, because it means that political leaders in Germany who call for peace, many of them call for peace in, in November 1918, because they know that German society is stretched, it's exhausted, it can't really go on. Uh, if it goes on, there'll be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more killed. Will that actually bring victory? Probably not. But the consequence of German troops being in France and Belgium and not on German soil, not being pushed back to Berlin, is that subsequently people can say, well, you know, was the German army really beaten in the war? Uh, or was it, in fact, there was a, a moral collapse behind the lines? 
the facts on the ground, if you like, create the uh, create the possibility of a narrative of being of the the the, the, the Germany was essentially stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, that socialists or others were responsible for this defeat, really, that it wasn't the fault of the army. And this is across the political scene. So, you know, in, in November 1918, when you've got German troops coming back from, you know, coming back from the, the, the front, streaming back into German cities, which are very, very hungry, there's a lot of disease, a lot of poverty, there's still a blockade against Germany, you find German politicians greeting them back almost as victors. Uh, and that sense of a, a victory which has been stolen from them really enters the German psyche very early in, the, in that in that in that post-war period in, in, in November 1918. Yeah, and and it seems like you you've got a couple. You know, it wasn't so obvious who would take over. The Kaiser's in in Holland and is still making moves and considering that maybe he could be put back, even if it's with a socialist chancellor or something like that. You have the socialists who are declaring a republic, and you have uh, Ludendorff making moves and trying to find someone to perhaps put him into power. Uh, the the German general. Then there could even be more that I that I missed here. Well, there's it's it, it's it's extraordinary the way that. You know, timing and chance play such an important role when you have these, when you have a, a situation of chaos. So, in the case of the in the case of the German Republic, you literally have, um, you know, the Kaiser's over in Belgium. This is in November 1918. The Kaiser's in Belgium. He's, you know, the news coming in from Berlin is very unclear. It's unclear what's happening in the capital. Uh, and then in in Berlin itself, you have a communist leader who's about to proclaim a communist republic in one part of Berlin, and then a socialist leader who, hearing about this, says, well, actually, I better go ahead and preempt that by proclaiming a republic before the communist guy. And so, uh, uh, so as a result of you know, this, this, this chain of information and confusion about what's going on, a republic is proclaimed before actually uh, the, the, what becomes the Weimar Republic. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances – I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Is essentially proclaimed before many people anticipated or even wanted it. And it's interesting to see, you know, it could currently with our current politics in America, there's a lot of focus on socialism and equating socialism to communism that, you know, you have this example in, in the uh, post-World War I Germany where it's actually the socialist that preempts the communists and their active uh, political opponents. As one reads Crucible, it hits me as a reader seeing these characters that come to play. I mean, you have a, a young African-American woman josephine who's escaping race riots in east st louis and we know what's going to happen with her and on a darker yeah, side yeah. we have a young german uh army person and uh, you know named adolf who's trying out slowly but surely different speeches first trying maybe he can attack capitalists and imperialists you know or just attacking the, 
the men at the table at Versailles, and then maybe he can attack Bolsheviks and Russians, and then finally settling that. One of his better arguments in the Munich street fair uh, politics of the day to get attention is to start attacking Jews and be more and more anti-Semitic. Well, one of one of the things I'm really trying to get get across in this book, and why why I've written it the way I've written it in the in the, the present tense, is uh, is to get us a to get a sense of of real immediacy to what's going on, so that just to place the reader, you know, in Berlin or in St. Petersburg mm. or, or in London or or in Chicago or wherever. But also to follow the the development of these of these characters, to follow the the trajectory. So if you take somebody like uh, like Adolf Hitler, who is one of the characters in the in the book, with a character such as uh, such as Adolf Hitler, uh, it's you know on the one hand it's extraordinary that he was able to uh, rise from a position of, of such unimportance in 1917. Uh, but also you see the way in which he is, you know, as you say, he's he's trying out these. He's trying out these different lines, the extent to which he's he is, in a sense, made by his public. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's quite a um, you, you know, you, you see these games of these these games of uh, a sort of call and response, the sort of the dog whistles, uh, which he uses in his in his speeches where he'll you know, he'll start by saying these people are so awful that maybe they should be. And then the and then his audience will cry out hanged and he'll say, oh, well, I'm not sure they should be hanged, but it's. It's that it's 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 the it's the it's the classic dictator's playbook of allowing your audience, your supporters to say the things that you can't say, to say the things that you can think but can't say. That's that's a very interesting thing to observe um, through these years. Vienna. Freud smokes his last cigar and immediately suffers the ill effects of its absence. Since then, I have been grumpy and tired, got heart palpitations and an increase in the painful swelling of my gums he writes to a colleague. But Freud is lucky. Help is at hand. Then a patient brought me 50 cigars. I lit one, became cheerful, and the gum irritation rapidly abated. Freud's patients talk of nothing but guilt. Sigmund himself begins to wonder out loud whether he will last the war. Albert Einstein writes to a friend, would it not be good for the world if degenerate Europe were to wreck itself totally? All of our exalted technological process civilization, for that matter, is comparable to an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. And uh, it's a fragmented time, uh, the collapse of uh, Germany and its effort, its war effort, and at the same time, the collapse of the Habsburg Empire, which had been so long a fixture of Europe and, 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 you know, and just the devastation of war. And at the same time, the scientific developments, most notably the theory of relativity that you point out that did it start to enter into the political, you know, science is attacked by politics in a way. It was political to be for relativity. Well, before the First World War, Einstein is a pretty marginal figure. He's he's already generated his theories of relativity, but they haven't really entered into the, into the cultural ether of the age. Uh, in 1919, he's essentially proved right. Uh, there's a, the two scientific expeditions, which essentially prove that his his estimations of of, uh, of the, the physics of the universe are more accurate than those of, of Newton, and there is this quite extraordinary upswelling of, of interest in Einstein as a scientist and in this notion of of relativity, which is of course almost immediately perverted. It's taken out of the context of of physics and taken into politics and society uh, and, and everything else. And you know, Einstein himself refers to this as a kind of as a kind of mass psychosis. But I think it's very reflective of an age where people have, as F. Scott Fitzgerald put it, they you know here's a, here's a new generation 
which has lost its bearings, it's lost its moorings, it's grown mm. up to find all gods dead, and it seeks new meaning. And sometimes it finds that new meaning in, in relativity, and sometimes it finds that new meaning in radical political ideologies, such as fascism or communism. Uh, just a reminder, I'm talking with Charles Emerson, the author of Crucible, The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of a New World, over 600 pages of just vignettes and interesting information. Because of that, there's there's so many places we could go with this. We'll talk about a few topics that are just because they happen to be in the news recently. Like one of the areas of, of disruption among many in Europe is Ukraine. Yes. And maybe you could talk a bit about the history of Ukraine always kind of kind of being at the whim of the stronger powers. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, U Ukraine is a Ukraine is a battleground in actually after the in a way after the formal end of the of, of the Great War. Uh, after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, Ukraine is still a battleground mm -hmm. uh, between different factions in, in Russia's civil war, which is ongoing at that time. Uh, but also after 1917, you find that the Germans and the Austrians sweeping into Ukraine and viewing that as, a, as, as the breadbasket, potential breadbasket for their, for their war effort. Kiev changes hands an extraordinary number of times in the years 1917, 1918, uh, 1919. Very briefly, there is, in fact, an independent Ukraine, that's to say independent of, of Russia. And it's that Ukraine to which Ukrainian, uh, the current Ukrainian regime looks when they think of their, their own historical, uh, histor the pedigree of their own historical existence. But of course, very swiftly, uh, Ukraine is subsumed within the, the resurgent Soviet empire. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the, the, the story of Ukraine constantly being, being subject to the whims of, of greater powers, of outside powers, you know, that, that, that's a story which goes deep to how Ukrainian politicians understand the fragility of their own statehood, because it has been fragile for such a long period of time. Yeah, and talk about Russia a bit, because Russia's revolution is going on. It's a product of the of the war. I mean, Lenin's, Lenin's sent back to, the, to Russia by the Germans. Some suggest it was kind of a secret weapon, although uh, it uh, certainly had effects all over the place, not just in Russia. But uh, they're fighting it out, and uh, there's you know, and I like how your book t discusses the various movements. You have Trotsky kind of out there uh, in in one area. Stalin is 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 doing some things in the in the background at first, uh, and Lenin has his type of revolution. And there's a there's a a lot of conflict about what that revolution is going to be about. And also, you see quickly the movement, even in the first years. A sense that this is going to be about one man rule or very few men ruling versus uh, real workers communes. Or well, that's right. I mean, you know, if you if you if you look at where where Lenin is, and this is one thing which you know it comes through in the book. I think a lot is that, that how unlikely many of the events that occur really are, how many of the um, the rises and falls are, and of course Lenin is a, is a classic example of that because in in 1919 you find in 1917, sorry early 1917, you find him uh, in Zurich, uh, living above a butcher's. Uh, and, you know, occasionally he gets various revolutionaries together in one of the local bars in Zurich, and he sort of harangues them about world revolution and about what it's going to be like. But does he really believe in that himself? It's unclear. Maybe he, he appears to think that, you know, this will happen at some point, because that's historical inevitability. But whether it'll happen within his own lifetime, he seems less sure about that. And then suddenly, uh, you have the February Revolution, and suddenly it's game on, and uh, and and Lenin is is searching for ways to 
get back to Russia to be at the center of uh, the revolution taking place in his homeland. And eventually uh, he, he, he managed to get back by, you know, it's, it's, the whole thing seems fantastical, really, but he persuades the Germans who are, after all, the, uh, you know, the, the great imperialist power of Central Europe. He persuades the Germans to allow him um, to, trans, uh, to go across their territory to return to, to, return to, uh, to, to Russia. And when he eventually does get to power himself after this very serious, very complex series of events in in 1917, which lead up to ultimately the Bolshevik coup, I think it's really a coup as much as a revolution, then very soon the ideas of communism, the ideas of, of collective enterprise, they very soon get subsumed into how can we allow this regime to survive? Uh, And that turns out to be uh, in a very, very top-down way of, of, of operations. Uh, and so really very, very early on, you see the Soviet Union, or it isn't even the Soviet Union yet, but you see the, the Bolshevik experiment being transformed from this idealized type into, into this, this much more grubby reality where power depends on the secret police having, having guns. Uh, and the, the idea of Soviet democracy is, is really hollowed out. That idea frightens a great number of Western countries in America, in the UK, in France, in Germany. Uh, there's, the, you know, even though they sent Lenin over, their their army. Is- well, this is, you know, this 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 is this is classic blowback, right? And of course, there are, there are people who are you are arguing mm-hmm. about that in Germany in 1917 and saying, look, maybe we shouldn't let this guy Lenin go to to Russia because, you know, what if he were successful? <laughs> Um, you know, would that really be such a would it would it really be such a good thing to set up a, a Bolshevik regime at the at the fringes of the German Empire? Uh, and of course, that is how it how it ultimately uh, ultimately plays out. So, you know, in, in 1918, 1919, after the, the the Soviet regime has been more or less established, but is very fragile, subject to civil war in Russia, uh, then the great fear in Western Europe and of course the United States as well becomes well, if it could happen in Imperial Russia which everyone thought of as being the most backward state uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, then, you know, could it also happen? Could it also happen here? Uh, so, so you get a, you get the, you get the, the, the red scare, which really, you know, seeps from Russia into, into Western Europe and then across the Atlantic, the United States. And it's not, it's not really that idle because of course it's true that the, uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks do see Russia as a starting point, not an end point. Uh, for revolution. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. 
It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, I mean, and you can you can understand the fear because if, if um, uh, w- the war machine and the wars rely on armies, armies are made up of people. They're usually not from, and the officers are from the high class, but the the, uh, the you need the you need the worker class for both uh, military campaigns and to keep the economy humming, to keep the factories going, and so it's not such an idle fear. You know, we may look at it now and say, "Oh, that it was," it, you know, it was uh, overreaching, or perhaps. But uh, if you're looking at America, and there, there are all of these war industries and people in factories that could be easily organized, and uh, and there are some genuine fears. Of J. Edgar Hoover makes his name, Attorney General Palmer has his raids. There's a lot going on in the United States. There's even a subject that has come up today, uh, deportations that the United States uh, engages in at that time. Well, you know, in, in, in June 1919, you get a bomb exploding outside the attorney general's house. This is a, you know, a major terrorist attack. You get body parts all over a, a very grand part of Washington, D.C., uh, a message signed by the anarchist fighters. Uh, and you get a sense that actually not only could it happen over here, but maybe it is happening over here. And it's very hard mm-hmm. to, it's very hard to gauge, um, how far that, how far that will go. Now, then, of course, what subsequently happens is, uh, Mitchell Palmer, massively the attorney general, uh, massively overreaches in, in his response and institutes essentially a, a dragnet operation to try and, um, to try and use to try and pull together as many foreign radicals as is possible and to use uh, the to use US immigration legislation in order to in order to deport them so there are all these raids where uh, you know for example there's a, a a pool hall in Pittsburgh which is raided and a number of Russians are, are rounded up a boarding house in Bridgeport Connecticut uh, there's a, a theater in New York where they're all marched off to uh, the Russians are marched off to to Battery Park and then taken to Ellis Island and you know, this is the sort of a process of, of, if you like, American history in reverse, being put in reverse mm-hmm. uh, by the uh, by the Attorney General Mitchell. How long had some of these people been in the country for? Were they recent or you know, often, often, often for many years? They weren't American citizens. Had they been American citizens, and they would have had to have been released uh, because of habeas corpus. But uh, you know, some had been there for, for 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 a matter of months. Others had been there for for several years. Um, you know, the notion that they were all somehow actually foreign radicals, I mean, some were foreign radicals, uh, but the notion that they were, they were all foreign radicals, that the, pur- the purpose here was to, was to create a, a, an environment which was unwelcoming, uh, and also to show that something was being done to help Mitchell Palmer's political career, of course, because he had ambitions to become, become president. And, you know, you've got somebody like, um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover in the background was also seeing the opportunity to advance his own career by by stirring up uh, the fear of the possibility of a, of a of a communist takeover and using whatever means are available uh, in order to try and forestall that and ultimately that ends up with the deportation of, of some some foreign radicals uh, in uh, in December 1919 and remember all of this with really very little in the way of in the way of due process uh, it's a power grab essentially. Uh, by the attorney general. And uh, do you have any sense of that? Uh, you think Palmer was 
going to be someone that was going to engage in this type of policy or was it that explosion that changed him? Yeah, I, I, I wondered about that. Well, you know, I, I think anyone who's gone through an event like that where, you know, you and your family are very nearly killed, I can see how that's going to have uh, an, an effect on you. But I think my impression is he very quickly sees a political opportunity which arises from this. You know, not only mm-hmm. a, a sort of a moral responsibility to defend the United States uh, by acting in the way he does, by using all the tools at his disposal, uh, whether that's justifiable or not. Uh, but I think he also spies a political opportunity. And that political opportunity is magnified by by the fact, of course, that Woodrow Wilson himself um, is out of action because he suffers a because he suffers a stroke mm-hmm. and he's debilitated. And so really, there's this there's this political vacuum which emerges at the end of 1919 in which the Red Scare can can flourish uh, and in which Mitchell Palmer can, um, you know, more or less do whatever he wants. If were it not for um, the person against whom he and this ends up turning into sort of a grudge match between between Mitchell Palmer and uh, and Louis Post, the assistant secretary of um, uh, of uh, of, uh, of labor. Uh, and ultimately, it's Lewis Post who, who then makes it impossible for Mitchell Palmer to advance along the lines that he'd intended, uh, which is basically to use immigration law to depend to 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 deport pretty much anyone he chooses. Do you get the sense that a would a healthy Woodrow Wilson uh, would have stepped in there more? Would have had a different policy? It's hard to know, but yes, I I, I do think so. I, yeah. I'm 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 really no particular fan of of Woodrow Wilson on 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 lots of levels, um, but I think he. I think you see you see American politics becoming very unbalanced mm. uh, in 1919 and 1920, and I think that is a result of of the absence of uh, you know essentially the, the president having vacated the scene. In effect, uh, you know, the United States is a system which, after all, does revolve to a very great degree around the presidency. What's it like writing a book like this? Is it, it it's you know it's a large book. You're covering the whole world essentially. You know, how'd you do it? And, and what is it like? Well, it's, it's a whole lot of reading. I can tell you that. Um, but I mean, w- one of the, one of the, one of the great things about, about researching this particular period of history is that there are a huge number of, uh, of diaries and memoirs and letters and, and other sources which one can draw upon, um, to get a sense of, um, you know, not just the, the chain of historical events, but also the ways in which individuals experienced those events. Now, often, if you're if you're reading letters, for example, in particular, those kinds of sources, you get a sense of the human level detail, uh, which which I try to convey very much in the book, alongside the sort of the, the big, you know, epoch changing um, political events. Uh, so, for example, if you you know, one of the characters I I describe in the book is is Sigmund Freud. It's extraordinary in a way to see this. This figure, the father of psychoanalysis, desperately writing to cousins in the United Kingdom, requesting that they send food parcels because in Vienna in 1919, the great father of psychoanalysis doesn't really have enough to eat. So, you know, very often I wanted to use these 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 sources, memoirs, diaries, letters um, to get across the personal experience. You know, it's not all about ideology. It's not all about big politics. Do you think there's a link between politics and culture when describing this period that some historians do, or is it just pure chaos? Uh, I don't think it's ever pure chaos. I think if you look at the at Dadaism or Surrealism they as artistic movements, they really reflect a disjointedness which was there 
in the world at the time, they reflect a loss, a loss of sense of, of sort of the, the natural, the natural center of things. I think that goes in these years, 1970 to 1924. And I think the, both the artistic and political currents, which emerge from that, uh, you know, they're in a way they're they're, they're two sides of the same, the two sides of the same coin. They emerge from the same mess. They emerge from the same chaos, uh, which is one reason why I think it's important to look at them together. It's not to say there's some kind of direct causality between them, but often, you know, ideologies such as fascism or communism, they're so huge in, a, in, an, in and of themselves that their, their trajectory is imagined or described as if it sort of existed in a vacuum. And it, it never exists in a vacuum. It always exists in connection with uh, other events, social, scientific, cultural, uh, which, are, which are going on in the world. Uh, you, can look at, you look at relativity, uh, which is described by Benito Mussolini, the, the Italian fascist. He describes fascism as being the most relativist phenomenon of the age. So here's somebody, Benito Mussolini, who in describing his political ideology is drawing on whatever the other currents are that are going on in the that are, that are going on in the world. In the case of surrealism, you have a very, very direct genesis in the world war itself, because the father of surrealism, Andre Breton, is a uh, he's a he's working in a psychiatric hospital in 1917. He observes shell shocked patients coming back from the front and this then becomes one of the inspirations for the ideas behind surrealism, the ideas that it's, it's important to connect with, not the things that are said, not the things which are at the surface necessarily, but to try and dig deeper into the human psyche, to dig deeper into the, into the unconscious, to do, if you like, in the arts, what Freud is doing in, in, in psychoanalysis. I think all these things are linked. The common view of the history of this time, and, and and probably not enough time is spent on it, but a very common view is that Versailles got it wrong. We punished Germany, or we, or the Allies, punished Germany too harshly, and that changes in that might have changed uh, what happened later. After doing this, do you have any different view from that kind of standard history? Well, look, generally people think of Versailles either being, you know, either they say, Look, it was too harsh, and the Germans couldn't pay up, and so this was bound to have this was bound to have an effect in terms of the Germans viewing it as being, uh, you know, somehow illegitimate. And I think there's a big element of truth to the the point about legitimacy, in the sense that many Germans never saw uh, Versailles as being legitimate as as a peace treaty, but not necessarily because they couldn't pay up, uh, because they didn't mm. accept the notion of full and exclusive blame for the war. But you have other things going on. You have, for example, and this is one of the interesting things that I, I was uncovering in the process of writing the book, you know, you have on the other side of Europe, you've got somebody uh, in Turkey, Mustafa Kemal, later known as Ataturk, who is essentially challenging the victory of the Allies in the First World War, um, is not prepared to accept the peace terms that they want to lay down, and ultimately successfully challenges them uh, so that what emerges in the East um, from the First World War is not at all what the Allies, Britain, France, and the United States uh, had originally envisaged as being the peace settlement in the East. So you, you do have places where the, the peace settlement is challenged. Indeed, indeed, it is successfully challenged. And I think at the same time, you know, you've got the fragmentation of the Allies. Uh, it's not just about the Versailles Treaty itself. It's about what happens after that, whether the Allies stick together and will actually impose the terms of that treaty and and of course that's that's 
not what happens at all, because the United States doesn't sign up to the League of Nations, to some degree resiles from its from its responsibilities in Europe in, in a way which is the polar opposite of what happens in 1945, of course. And then also on the on the British and French side, very soon the tensions between the British vision of, of what should happen and the French vision of what should happen there, security interests and so forth, that reemerges. And so it, it's not just it's not just whether the treaty itself was good or bad, uh, whether it was fair or not. Uh, it's the challenges which emerge from outside uh, and also the, the question of whether the allies themselves uh, will stick together, which ultimately they don't until, of course, it becomes a matter of life and death again in the Second World War. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, there, there were some that said we could we should have just kept marching that the allies, you know, with the now that the after the American ex- expeditionary force had arrived and were, were stronger, should have marched to Berlin and maybe that would have prevented it or we could have been better at the peace table and it would have prevented it so there's a lot there's a lot to consider there one of the notes from your book i noticed is that in a in a comment uh adolf hitler the early adolf hitler's using the fact that america hasn't joined the league of nations as a invitation for for his rhetoric in a sense that see the americans don't want to join the league it's not it's 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 puny they want to just rule by strength, and that's what Germany should do as well. Well, that, that's a very apposite question in in the in in current geopolitics, right? Whether whether you want whether you want to create a world system in which you know essentially the stronger you are, the more likely you are to get what you want, or whether you believe that you need to set out rules and norms and then abide by them uh, in order to create the kind of world that you want to live in, where perhaps you don't need to rely on strength, uh, military strength, or other strength. In order to get what you want, which is the which is the preferable the preferable world um, for you to live in, and that seems to me to be a very very uh, live argument at the moment, um, certainly in U.S. politics, and to a degree I think also in European and British politics. Absolutely, I've been speaking with Charles Emerson, and if you're you're looking on Amazon, that is Emerson with two M's. The book is Crucible: The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of a New World, 1917 to 1924. Charles, thanks so much for coming on. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.